0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Despina Stratagakos about her excellent new book, Hitler's Northern Utopia, Building the New Order in Occupied Norway. Hi, Despina. Hello. Welcome to the show. Um, Hello,
1: and thank you for inviting me to the New Books Network.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. Um, we always like to begin these interviews by having the authors tell us a little bit about themselves. So um, why don't we go ahead and do that now?
1: So I am a professor in the School of Architecture and Planning at the University at Buffalo and UB's Vice Provost for Inclusive Excellence. I am also an architectural historian uh, who is drawn to stories that don't tend to appear in mainstream history books. I've written about uh, the histories of women in architecture and their role as city builders. I've also written about unfamiliar dimensions of otherwise well-known histories, such as the role that Hitler's homes and domestic image played in German politics of the 1930s. And more recently, I've explored what Hitler intended with all of that construction that he ordered in occupied Norway. I had an amazing dissertation advisor, Barbara Miller Lane at Bryn Mawr College, uh, who taught me um, not to overlook the obvious, and the obvious is often not what you think. so she um she started me off on this path of of thinking about what are the things that are um, are missing and uh, but in right in front of our eyes so that's
0: it. That's it. <laughs> and and so was there anything in, in your background that sort of got you real interested in architecture, or was it something you just sort of slowly came to over time?
1: I actually started off uh, studying as an undergraduate anthropology. Um, I've always been really interested in um, the ways in which culture operates and how um, sometimes people sort of are on the outside of it or the inside of it. I think that comes from um, uh, being in Canada and uh, with parents who were immigrants. And I think, you know, um, like many immigrants, you know, struggling to kind of find their place in, in a new country. Um, but I think that I, I became kind of interested in architecture um. And the culture sort of of the the profession just kind of gradually um, and you know being curious about the world around us and uh and how you know thinking about who's constructing it and how it's being constructed and then also who's on the inside or the outside of uh of architecture in terms of feeling comfortable in in spaces and thinking about cities and the ways that they empower some people and disempower others. So I was really interested in power and how that plays out in architecture, whether it's you're talking about an empire or a living room. I'm not entirely sure how I I got there, but I think it was the thread is always um, thinking about the cultural side of things.
0: Um, so now let's let's turn to this book specifically, um, and you, you've mentioned in your introduction you you've written a lot of different things. Um, this this is such a unique and interesting book in in a lot of ways, which we're going to talk about over the next hour. Um, but and and Norway, I feel like is forgotten by a lot of people, both historians and sort of casual like history buffs when they think about World War II. Um, so why why Norway? Um, And and sort of walk us through the sort of origin story of this book.
1: So the origin story of this book, it actually starts... um, It starts by accident. Um, That's actually how a lot of my books seem to start where I am looking for one thing and I find something else and I can't stop thinking about the other thing that I found. So I was um, at the German Federal Archives in Berlin. I was uh, researching um, another Third Reich subject and I came across a file about Hitler's secret plans to build a city in occupied Norway. So I knew nothing um, about the Nazis uh, building projects there. Um, So of course, you know, being an academic, I go off to the library, and I come home with a book on the history of Norwegian architecture, and, you know, very excitedly open it up, and am uh, disappointed to see that the chapters skip from 1940 to 1945. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I didn't believe that those years were, were blank. And that unwritten chapter, the missing chapter turned into this book. But, you know, that makes it sound very straightforward. But in fact, it took me a while. Again, I'm um, it was the same actually with Hitler at home. Uh, I didn't plan to write that book, but I you you come across something and you just it won't let you go. You're it's just so you you keep going back to it and digging a little more and digging a little more um, until you're you know, you find yourself fully into a new project.
0: And, and so along the way, did you have any moments where you thought, well, maybe I'll just write an article or two, um, about it or, or, you know, oh, maybe I'll just put it aside and get back to it later. Or did this project, um, did you know, at what point did you know this was going to be a book?
1: Um, it was actually at a conference, uh, in, um, in Bergen, um, on, the Nazis use of art in occupied Norway I'd been invited to attend this um, uh, this conference and I said well this was after I had just found this document um, in the archives and I said well you know I thanks very much for the invitation but I actually know nothing about this but by the way you really should get someone to to look into this because I found you know and I told them about the document that I had found and uh, they really encouraged me like to come and <laughs> they're like well no one else is going to do it, you know. Why don't you come to the conference? And so I ended up, you know, preparing this this conference paper and um, delivering it there uh, among a, a group of amazing sort of Norwegian historians. And the conversations that that um, developed uh, um, around this just really encouraged me to to go on and and to tackle this as as a book project. So it's you know it's. Conferences are so important, and I really miss them. <laughs> I have to say, in COVID, uh, be- exactly for that, because it's it's a they're a place where you can test out your ideas and see whether, in fact, you do want to. So you know, this is right for an article, or this is right for a book, or for something else. And so, um, I'll always be grateful to that that group for for setting me on the, on this path. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's sort of take your book now. Um, it's broken down into five chapters. Um, all of which are very readable. And for many of our listeners, they will love to know there are lots of great pictures (laughs) in this book. Um, really, really excellent, um, use of, of graphics. Um, so let's start with the real basics that you cover in, in, in the first chapter. How did Nazi Germany view Norway? Um, how did they view Norwegians sort of culturally and racially um, and, and sort of why did Hitler have such a fascination with Norway? Um, you tell that very interesting story of Hitler on the boat sort of touring up there in Norway. Um, but then I'll we'll start with that. And then I'll ask a couple of follow-ups.
1: Yeah. One of the, um, one of the interesting things about in, in the research is that I discovered that Hitler had, been to Norway um on a cruise in 1934 and that was something that I didn't again I didn't know about and then discovered um uh, an album of negatives from that trip at the um the national the national archives in uh College Park Maryland so that you know that again one of these things that pulls you in and you just keep keep going deeper and deeper um so uh how did Nazi Germany view Norway? Well, in, um, in their notion of a racial hierarchy, uh, Nazis placed Norwegians at its apex. Uh, like So they were seen as being superior even to Germans in the purity of their so-called Aryan blood. And uh, so they saw the Norwegians as really invaluable to their mission to purify Germany's Aryan population through selective breeding. So uh, in order to convince Norwegians of their shared Nordic brotherhood and interests, Hitler uh, courted them with propaganda and incentives, unlike the policies, you know, of mass extermination and slave labor that he deployed in Eastern uh, Europe. Now, culturally, however, the Germans did not hold the Norwegians in the same high regard. I mean, they did believe that they shared a common Nordic culture and they, you know, celebrated Norwegian art, artists such as, you know, the writer Henrik Ibsen or the painter Johann Christian Dahl. But they thought that culturally the Germans were more advanced than, than the Norwegians as well as much more advanced politically, especially in their race consciousness. They thought the Norwegians were really lacking in race consciousness. Um, The Nazis thought that Norwegians had fallen under some bad influences from England and the United States, and that their culture had degenerated and had to be reformed uh, politically and uh, culturally. So um, as the book explores, that actually has an impact on how uh, Nazi construction projects played out in Norway. So we find a, a deep contradiction between those projects that are meant to bring Norwegians and Germans closer together and others that are, are meant to keep them apart. So it, it it's um, it's very much like this ideology very much informs, you know, the 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 projects that Hitler undertakes in Norway and and it's you know this this contradiction is at the heart of them.
0: One of the things I noticed in that chapter was that there there seems to be a sort of urban rural divide, um, mm-hmm. sort of embedded in German thinking about Norway. They they seem to have really disliked the cities, the urban architecture, mm-hmm. which I think you I mean as you point out in in the book that comes from these bad influences, right? Um, And so you talk to us a little bit about this sort of urban rural divide in sort of German thinking. Um, and I guess does it fit into how the Germans sort of viewed themselves with this whole, like all these Hemat culture and all that and all that.
1: Mm. So there, um, there is uh, this profound contrast in, in how urban and rural Norway are portrayed in, uh, Nazi propaganda, and that does reflect an ideological stance that goes back decades in in Germany, but it takes on new meanings in uh, Norway. So Oslo um, was the capital of Nazi-occupied Norway, and uh, Nazi writers just lambasted it as, you know, culturally degenerate. In in their eyes, um, that degeneracy exists in the architecture. Um, The Nazis hate functionalist architecture, which dominates at that point, the Oslo cityscape. Uh, They also see it in the Americanization of Oslo and uh, the attraction of of young Norwegians to swing and jazz. Um, They also see it in uh, Oslo's women, uh, interestingly, who are far too independent for, on Nazi tastes and, and Nazi writers mock them as flappers who are obsessed with uh, cocktail recipes and you know quote unquote Jewish uh, psychoanalysis and who have you know lost their sense of duty to the nation and and folk and and finally they also see that degeneracy in um, Oslo's left leaning politics which they want to crush so there are all these various kind of elements. Um, to the degeneracy that they see um, happening in Oslo now by comparison nor- uh, rural Norway is portrayed as a place where the people are still connected to the land and to you know a healthy in their view Nordic culture you know where men are men and women are women and people understand their duty to the folk and Nazi writers praise the traditional timber architecture of, Rural areas, which they see as authentic and beautiful compared to Oslo, uh, Oslo's, um, inauthentic and ugly modernity again in their, in their eyes. So this, um, this contrast is very stark. It, it draws on already sort of a, um, a well-developed conservative discourse in, in Germany, um, but is used by, uh, Nazi propagandists in Norway as a way to try again to try to convince norwegians that they that they're actually being saved by the Nazis um, from this kind of degeneracy and for German uh, readers reading about this, you know it also rings a bell in terms of oh yes you know this is this is familiar this uh, this this seems right so it um it, 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 they, they, you know, it's it's taking something that's you know been tried in Germany, and this this happens in other ways as well, uh, and kind of twisting it so for it to they hope work in uh, Norway. Um, they do this, for example, with the autobahns, too. Uh, Hitler. Uh, plans to build an, orders there to build uh, to build an autobahn from Trondheim to Berlin, and in the propaganda around the autobahn, it's it's very similar again to the propaganda around the autobahns in um, in Germany. So that you know the Nazi propagandists think that this will uh, they think it's worked in Germany. Let's try it in Norway. And there are always, you know, two audiences. There are the the Norwegians and then there's the Germans back home uh, who, you know, also have to be convinced of this um, new front that Hitler has opened up, which nobody was expecting.
0: Yeah, that that sort of leads me to my next question about, and it's the second chapter of your book. Um, Almost immediately after the occupation of Norway, the, the Germans sort of begin all of these massive infrastructure projects um, and you touched on the the two audiences um, already. Um, but can you you give us a little bit of a flavor of what the the projects were, what they what they were hoping to achieve um, outside of maybe convincing the audiences? Um, and uh, yeah, and then we'll go from there.
1: Um there are all kinds of infrastructure projects. Um, I mentioned the Audubon. Uh, there's also a polar railway. Um, there are uh, new highways, there are airports. Um, so there are all kinds of, um, uh, all kinds of sort of traditional ideas of infrastructure that, you know, uh, we understand. Um, and they, f- they focus on that partly because they uh, want to bring Norwegian resources down to Germany uh, but they also think that Norway is a bit behind the times, and um, they want to bring it up to what they call the tempo of Nazi Germany. So they, you know, they they um, they want to improve its infrastructure, and that was something that they'd been um, actually looking at before they even invaded. Uh, but there's this other aspect of infrastructure that I talk about in that chapter, and that's the Lebensborn institutions. Which started in Germany, but which um, just explode in uh, Norway, and those are institutions that are meant—they are maternity and adoption homes, or orphanages—I should really say—and they're 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 meant to encourage Norwegian women um, who um, have become pregnant um, with German s- soldiers. Um, n- to have their babies and not to abort them and um once they see you know just how many babies there there are going to be they create these uh institutions lebensborn institutions and they start um it, you know uh, bringing these babies down to germany um and so i talk about that as a kind of um pipeline on a cellular level. And it it was, I know, kind of an unusual thing to bring into a chapter on infrastructure. But when you're thinking about the infrastructure of a racial empire, um, I think we have to think, you know, kind of beyond the, uh, the traditional forms of infrastructure to think about what is the infrastructure that a racially based empire needs? And so that they're included in, in that chapter as well. And um, so there are many ways in which the, you know, the Nazi architects and engineers are thinking about and, um, infrastructure. Um, so what really struck me when I first started to look into this is that um, I found a, a map um, that was created by allied intelligence um, of uh, all the different construction sites. Um, I think it's in 1942, the date of the map. And um, the country, you look at this map and the country is a massive construction site from top to bottom. And uh, so the scale of, of, of the infrastructure projects is really just, um, uh, you know, unexpected. Um, And um, so what is Hitler, you know, in a nutshell, trying to do with these architectural and infrastructure projects? Well, I mean, on the one hand, he's um, he's trying to, you know, literally and figuratively build bridges to Norway's citizens to bring them into the fold of his Greater German Reich. But at the same time, um, as I mentioned, the German occupiers are building an empire. Uh, one of the things that I uh, that really surprised me about those projects is that many of them are intended for the post war period, when the Nazis expect to uh, you know reign supreme across Europe. So I mean, we, you people might be more familiar with the huge defensive structures that they built along Norway's coast, but what surprised me was you know the the, the plans for the post war period. And so when we look to Norway, uh, we see what Hitler and his architects, you know, were planning for the world under the swastika and that they had already begun to build it in Norway. Uh, we also see, you know, how the Nazis imagine themselves in relation to the north, which is a place that's both physical and mystical uh, for them. The Nazis uh, never planned to leave Norway, despite Public pronouncements to the contrary, and instead they really saw the invasion of Norway as a homecoming. Um, the Nazis believed that Germans had originated in the north, and you know were finally returning, and they were through these projects making the land their own again. So that building um, is is central to this strategy of reappropriation, and that you know makes sense if you think that you know Hitler. As a, as a young man had dreamed of becoming an architect. And so it's not too surprising that later on it influences his methods of empire building. So, yeah, for, for all those reasons, then we just, you know, they're, they're, the Nazis are, are putting enormous, uh, an enormous investment in, in terms of infrastructure and architecture into, into remaking Norway.
0: Um, Would you, just a a little follow-up, would you make the argument that Norway was sort of a template for them, that they were going to replicate, you know, see how it went in Norway with these projects and then sort of duplicate it elsewhere, both architectural, mostly, I guess my question, mostly architecturally, they're going to sort of use this stamp in other places? Do you think that that was something that they thought about?
1: I think it's a template for... Those countries that they deem are worthy of partnership in sure. the greater, you know, in, in the greater German Reich, um, you know, that are this, that are part of this Nordic, imagine Nordic brotherhood, it's clearly not the case for Eastern Europe, which is just, you know, the approach there is just to wipe out peoples and cities, um, you know, just tabula rasa. And uh, in Norway, because um, they actually want to befriend the Norwegians, if you can believe this, um, they they take a different approach. Um, and uh, so I, I do think it's a template, but for a specific, you know, um, subset. Uh, sure. Of, yeah. Of specific
0: nation. set of circumstances yeah. have to be met. Okay. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that's clear, because I know that I'm sure some of our listeners have um, probably read, Catherine Epstein's book about Arthur Greisler and it talks a lot about the sort of reconstruction of the Vardegau. Um, and they're very different projects. <laughs> um, and very I think different,
1: but they're, um, they're kind of the, they're, they're the flip sides of each other because of each other. Yeah. Um, uh, so as, as the Nazis are thinking, for example, of, you know, erasure in, in, and, uh, you know, eliminating you know in their mind threats to the gene gene pool. They're also thinking about, uh, you know, where they can uh, appropriate um, things that will help them. So it's it's um, it's flip sides of you know their horrific project.
0: Um, so let's sort of switch gears a little bit and, and move on to your next chapter. Uh, along with a lot of these infrastructure projects, um, Hitler had ordered the sort of the creation or building of uh, recreational and cultural centers for German soldiers Mm -hmm. uh, stationed in Norway. Um, For uh, statistical purposes, um, do you have um, a rough number of how many German soldiers were stationed in Norway throughout the war?
1: It varies, but the numbers are uh, huge. So the the highest number is over 400,000 um it, it dips down after the um invasion of the soviet union but it's a very very high number
0: high number um, yeah
1: there and and you know that's um norway's population is not that big it's about 3 million that then so this is a huge number and in some places where the you know the the german troops um are concentrated particularly in the north you know military strategic um, places. Sometimes they're in villages where they just swamp the in, inhabitants where you have like a village of 200 people and you have 2000 German troops who show up.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. um, so, so what was the idea behind these, these cultural centers was, was the, were these sort of specifically for German soldiers or was it just another sort of, I guess, instrument to help, Know bring Norway and Germans together. Mm,
1: great question. So uh, Hitler uh, commissions a hundred of these uh, centers. They're called um and um, a quarter of them were actually uh, built. So these are, as you mentioned, cultural, cultural and recreational centers um, for. Uh, Troops to spend their off-duty hours, and they're generously designed um, and furnished. They have theaters, you know, that show German films. Uh, restaurant, restaurant, pubs that serve uh, German food and beer, and you know, walls decorated with uh, German art, you know, libraries with German uh, books, and so on and so on. Um, so these, they're really these self-contained uh, German worlds and they are specifically for uh german germans um and specifically for you know the the soldiers and to try to reinforce their national identity in a foreign land norwegians are actually forbidden to enter them so they're not a place where the germans and norwegians are going to come uh together so uh these 100 plans soldatenheime were you know to be located throughout norway but they were particularly needed uh, Hitler thought in the north of the country and uh, you know this is a region that is um, in winter cold and dark and um, that affected soldier morale Um and uh, they're often, as I mentioned, these. sometimes they were stationed in places that were tiny, um, tiny villages, and there's not a lot to do. So Hitler um, worried that German soldiers, you know, isolated in these northern uh, reaches might lose themselves, might lose their sense of self. So the Soldatenheime were meant to be kind of pieces of the homeland that's how they're talked about islands of the homeland that are tethering the soldiers and keeping them german Um, and again i found this so interesting because it starts to give us uh insight into how are you going to manage the greater german reich you know how are you going to as you know the it expands the territory expands how are you going to tether it um, and keep it focused on, you know, the homeland and on, on Berlin. So we start to see the ways in which uh, German identity is being reinforced and protected.
0: I, I, I don't want to um, go too far afield from your book. I, I And I will readily admit it, this is something I knew nothing about, um, these recreational centers. Do you know if this these were built in other occupied countries?
1: Or. They were. They were. And they actually go back as a model. They go back to World War One, And um, they were especially important from the Germans' perspective on the Eastern Front in World War One for very similar reasons, keeping, you know, German boys German. Um, but what um, is unusual in Norway is that because the Norwegian population is so small and many of the, as I mentioned, the towns that the soldiers are in are so small. Um, they just there in, in these other countries like France. There would be um, you know theaters or bars or restaurants that you could take over and turn into Soldatenheim, and that's what happens. But in Norway, you just don't have the building stock to do that. You don't have you know, buildings that you can, um, you know, that can hold 1,200 or 1,300 soldiers, which some of these can. So they have to create a new uh, building type in Norway, and they have to um, build these, even in these really remote locations. So Hitler gets very excited by this, um, you know, he's, he's, he always gets very excited about architectural projects. And uh, so they develop building types um, that you can they're pre they're prefabricated um, and they are shipped, you know, depending different sizes of Soldatenheimer are shipped to these locations, and all the contents are shipped with them too. So um it's a you know it's um, it's an an architectural architectural experiment that we don't see in. Uh, other locations, and again, you know, a sign of the kinds of you know new architecture that's going to be required for the empire.
0: I think throughout, even just the beginning parts of our discussion, I, I hope the listeners are, are realizing that these are a lot of resources being put into Norway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the the, the shipping of these centers, you know, the prefab centers and the the massive architecture projects. Uh, um, I'm hoping that people listening are getting a real sense of of, of Norway was a really important place uh, to the Nazis. And I, I know for a lot of people who maybe, you know, are just interested in World War II, Norway is sort of an afterthought <laughs> for a lot of people who are interested in the war and sort of things. Um, but, I mean, you, you're, you're really painting a picture of, of Norway in, in a very different way. Uh, that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with. Um, So let's uh, turn now to my next question. It's about Albert Speer, Mm -hmm. um, Hitler's favorite architect. Um, He was sent to Norway um, apparently to rebuild 23 towns um, that were destroyed during the initial invasion. Um, I want to ask about the towns um, and why, I mean, obviously these towns were destroyed, so that's why they have to be rebuilt. Um, But um, what the plan was for these towns, and then to discuss the level of collaboration, maybe between Speer and the Norwegian architects themselves. Um, We'll start there and we'll go from there.
1: Okay. um, So Albert Speer doesn't actually get to go to Norway. He's he's very disappointed by that um, because Hitler... Gets nervous um, about the resistance there, and he um, he tells him that you know he, he's just too valuable to risk. At least that's what Albert Speer goes around and tells everybody in <laughs> <that. laughs> his his very modest way. Um, but he he's planning on it, and so the the Norwegians um, actually start the process of reconstruction in the summer of nineteen forty. So they they begin um, the the process, but the Germans uh, soon take it over in order to shape the towns according to Nazi town planning principles. So it was um, Josef Terboven, the Reichskommissar for occupied Norway, who reached out to Speer to ask him to oversee the rebuilding of these uh, towns. Speer was um, enormously busy, so he assigned his second-in-command, Hans Stefan, an architect who managed uh, Speer's Berlin office, to be the liaison with the Norwegian architects um, that they selected, Um, although Speer did meet with them uh, directly in in Berlin as well. So the collaboration was actually quite intense, uh, especially in the early years. So not only did uh, Speer and uh, Stefan uh, select the architects to work on reconstruction, but Speer also invited them uh, for a three-week study tour of Germany and Austria, so that the Norwegians could uh, familiarize themselves with Third Reich architecture and urban planning, and then bring those ideas back to Norway um, and adapt them uh, there. So the, um, the Nazi desire to create model cities in occupied Norway reflects a longer preoccupation with urban planning for Hitler and his architects. And already in Germany in the 1930s, uh, Nazi planners designed and, and built uh, whole towns you know, as basically stage sets for the performance of the Volksgemeinschaft, the racial community. And in occupied uh, Norway, the, the Germans in, you know, uh, invest vast sums to c- create the physical preconditions uh, necessary for a new social order, you know, which they believed could not thrive in just any built environment. So you really do need to kind of prepare the ground um, for this new order. So that's the reason why, you know, the Nazis insisted on overseeing the the rebuilding of these towns because they see them as the nuclei of the the new order. And they felt that Norwegians were um, far too individualistic um, and they needed, you know, new public spaces and new public rituals to cultivate a sense of uh, community. And so in the schemes for, the reconstructed town plans, we see them introducing uh, marching squares and parade routes, as well as new architectural types, such as, you know, Nazi party buildings, um, which is also meant to kind of reorient life towards the party. But what was uh, surprising to me in these plans was the focus on embedding Nazi values into everyday lives and uh, spaces. it's much less about monumentality and much more about just these stage sets that you live your life in every day. Speer was also open up to incorporating Norwegian traditions into these uh, schemes. So overall, this is a a much more subtle approach to design than what we think of when we think of you know Speer's monumentalizing architecture, the you know the Nuremberg rally grounds or the New Reich Chancellery, and to me this is this is much more terrifying um, because I think it would be harder to defend against that um, more subtle approach.
0: And, and was this this approach was this part of the thinking was to sort of help to more speedily incorporate the Norwegians themselves into the German Reich? So if you sprinkle a little bit of Norwegian culture in and then have all these other subtle things that sort of get them in more of a Nazi way of thinking. Was that, was that part of the, like the, the strategy? Was it that very intentional in that way?
1: I mean, the Norwegian architects are to you know, some extent also pushing back, right. In try, in terms of trying to um, you know, they, they, they want to bring their own perspective to this and they they try so that's where you know the norwegian traditions are coming in and um that's what's interesting is that there's a you know there's there's give and take um and and Schber is willing to you know to to do some giving but there are also limits um to that but these um these towns are really meant to change behavior and they're they're meant to change um really people's mindsets. And you know, the in in the um Hans Stefan's uh, letters to Speer are really interesting because he talks about what I think was a common perception among uh Germans about Norwegians. You know, they're they're really independent, they're stubborn, you know, they're <laughs> They're, they're not, uh, you know, uh, they don't have the kind of the mentality that they want in terms of reorienting them towards this life of, you know, this communal life centered around the party. And uh, so they think that they'll be able to change people's mindsets through these, uh, through changing the way that they live. And uh, so in terms of like, for example, one of the things that... Um, Speer insists that they change is that traditionally the, the church was, you know, the focus of of the town and uh, Speer wants them to get rid of the churches and um, instead ma- make those central places the Nazi party building. So, like, it's a very big change and the Norwegians push back um, and there's, you know, some negotiation around that. But um, they are they are, um, they're really the building blocks, um, from the perspective of, of Speer, you know, and, and Stefan, these are the building blocks for the new society. You can't build a new society on old foundations, literally, you know, like you, you, you need new foundations for this new, um, this new way of thinking.
0: Let's, um, now transition to the sort of the last part of the book. Um, The plans, so all of this is sort of, I guess, all the first four chapters, the infrastructure projects, the rebuilding of these small towns, sort of leading us to the building of a whole new city, (laughs) a whole new sort of German city in Norway. Um, Of course, it's accompanied with a naval base, um, which I think we should talk about them maybe separate, these things separately. So it's the idea of the city first um, and what the city was supposed to accomplish where it was, and then... I'll ask you about the naval base that's also there.
1: Well, if it's okay, I'll actually start with the naval base because it's sure. the reason yeah. why the city, the idea of the city arises. So um, already in October 1939, so a month after the invasion of Poland, the Germans uh, grow concerned that their naval bases are within England's blockade lines, and they don't want to repeat what happened in World War I when the Allied blockade cut off the maritime supply of goods to Germany with really devastating consequences. So Admiral um, Eric Rader starts lobbying Hitler uh, to establish a naval base with uh, free access to the Atlantic, and they consider locations in Norway as well as actually in the Soviet Union. After the invasion of Norway, the plans for a major new German naval base developed very quickly. Now, alongside that, Hitler comes up with the idea for a brand new German city to be built nearby, Um, and this city would service the base but also act as a cultural beacon in uh, the north. So... um, Speer desperately wants to design the city. It would be the first one that he would cr- have created from scratch. And uh, he basically throws a fit to get Hitler to agree to give him uh, the commission. So in, in the book, I explore you know, the process by which they select the site um, on the Trondheim fjord, which is south of the existing city of Trondheim, and the progress they make on uh, construction And um, I should add that these plans are top secret uh, because they don't want the Norwegians to find out and realize that the Germans are never leaving. Um, And one of the things I find so interesting about the new planned city, which was uh, to be called Neutronheim. Is uh, the immense contradiction it represents? So it gets back again to this uh, what we were talking about earlier about these contradictions. So, despite the fact that Nazi propaganda um, proclaims Hitler's intentions to treat Norwegians as equals in the Greater uh, German Reich, you know the plans for this new city. I mean, clearly expose uh, you know a very different reality. This is a a city that is intended for German residents and uh, with institutions, including, uh, you know, a a museum and an opera house that are going to celebrate German uh, culture. So like the Soldaten but like on a much greater scale, the German rulers are keeping themselves apart again from the Norwegians. And uh, to me, this indicates that the Nazis' future empire, as they envision it and are you know beginning to build it in Norway, is always going to be a place where the Germans, as rulers, stand apart and beyond all others,
0: no matter
1: what the supposed purity of their Aryan blood.
0: Um, so you mentioned a couple of things. Um, so... Where did this? How far did the city get along in the building process? Um, was it interrupted? Um, was the naval base, um, how critical was the naval base as the war went on, too? I guess, uh,
1: you know, like the polar uh railway that I mentioned, uh, this is one of Hitler's uh favorite projects and he won't let it go, so he really pushes it. Pushes the architects and the planners to keep going and going, um, you know, beyond the point that really they should have stopped. The um, they uh, did get to work um, on the base, the naval base. Um, fortunately, it took them a long time to actually start building because they were having trouble uh, finding um, a stable. Um, in terms of the soil conditions, finding stable so- soil conditions, that area has you know tremors and um, um, is is not really great for building something this large. So they they take a long time to figure out where they can put this base and city. And that actually really saves, um, saves the, the landscape there from uh, more destruction uh, because by the time they're really getting the construction underway, it's also getting um, harder in terms of just keeping up uh, as you know, especially Germany turns to total war at a certain point, which is when the project gets, it, does, it never gets canceled, it gets shelved until they can come back to it after they've won the war. Um, so uh, after you know, um, after Norway was liberated, um, all of that construction uh, was pulled up and and removed. Although you can still see um, you can still see signs of it. And uh, today, the site of the naval base is actually a, a camping beach. <laughs> and I went and, um, you know, to, to to look and see what the landscape looked like and, you know, see what you could still see of the construction. And um, at one point I looked down at my feet and I realized that it is um, all of this crumbled building material, bricks and concrete that, you know, after, you know, nearly 80 years have eroded. And if you don't look closely... Um, you know, you could you could just think that they're rocks or things like that, but it's actually made up of of that naval base, a lot of that beach. Um, now, looking, of course, you know, like eroded into the landscape, but there are still uh, still signs um, if if you know to look for them.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing. Uh, and I I want to um, sort of um, turn to now your use of sources in this book. Um, you use a lot of very, very interesting sources. And you and you take the time to highlight them a little bit in, in the introduction. Um, so if you can give us just a, a brief overview of the new sources that you used, um, sort of where you found them, um, and, and maybe some one or two things that you found really remarkable about them.
1: Okay, I'm going to try to keep this answer short because <laughs> asking a historian about their sources is just, like, right. oh, it's just like, do you have an hour? <laughs> um, so, uh I traveled to archives, and uh, this was an, abs- uh, an archival-based project, um, and I traveled to archives in Norway, Germany, and the United States. Um, most of these were public, um, but there was one very important private collection, and that was Hans uh, Stefan's um, papers. So uh, one of the, you know, one of the challenges that I faced, I think is typical for archival research, which is just getting to, you know, the archives, um, the materials I used weren't digitized. Um, so accessing them meant physically getting to the archives and then spending, you know, long days going through heaps of folders. And now I look back on that, you know, very romantically because, um, you know, that is something that's become so much harder um, on with COVID. Now, what was unusual was uh, the vast size of the Organisation Tote collection, the main collection that I used at the National Archives of Norway in Oslo. This collection is so large that it took archivists a very long time, almost uh, 70 years to process just the mountain of documents uh, left behind by Hitler's uh, engineering division in Norway which was responsible for much of the work that I explore in the book. So, I mean, it was, it's, this is not, you know, this is not a typical situation for a historian. Um, And, uh, but it was a good challenge uh, to have, uh, just to have to, you know, get through um, tens of thousands of documents. And it gives you a different perspective too, because a lot of that, you know, what was interesting to me was that, there was so much material in there, and it was material that um, you don't often have. Um, so, for example, with the Soldatenheime, there were a lot of problems constructing them because they are in these really remote places, and everything had to be shipped in crates. And you know, I remember one. You know, there are lots of letters back going back and forth, just trying. You know asking where's my shipment and then one shipment arrives and it's you know of all the the chairs for a theater and they've arrived with the wrong screws so you can't actually put them together and you know it um it gives you like a texture that is I think hard to often get Um, from what remains. Um, So one of the challenges was just, you know, figuring out how to weave that texture into, into the narrative without sort of um, maybe getting overwhelmed uh, by it. So there were things, you know, it's always hard to leave things out, but you know, you have to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That is one of the constant challenges of any projects like this, all the things that you want to put in, but um, they just, they have to be left out or the books would be, you know, thousand pages. (laughs) Uh, um, So as a way to sort of conclude discussion of your book, I I always like to ask, what are one or two things you would like people listening to you today and people who hopefully will pick up your book and read it to really take away from it and and not just take away from it, but to keep with them?
1: Um, So there are uh, a number of popular television shows right now that imagine what the world might have looked like if the Germans had won the war, such as Amazon's The Man in the High Castle. So if we look to occupied Norway, we see that the Nazis had already actually begun to build that world in the 1940s. And it was closer than we think to not having been an alternate reality at all. So that's one thing. The second thing is I think we have to rethink our preconceptions of what a national socialist built landscape looks like. And by the time the Germans arrived in in Norway, Nazi ideas on architecture and power were shifting, and they were focusing more on everyday spaces. The occupiers' infrastructure projects also played a big role in Norway, and these... um, these kinds of projects tend to be less conspicuous as physical relics of the past. So we have to really pay attention to them in a different way. So in a nutshell, I think we have to get beyond the idea that monumentality alone defines the national socialist built landscape.
0: Um, So now that this book is done, (laughs) it's out. Uh, people can pick it up and read it um what are you working on now are you are you still in norway or are you are you moving to other you know other places
1: other places but i don't know where exactly yet so i am uh working on a cultural history of ghost towns going back uh thousands of years and across many different countries to understand you know how we came to be obsessed with abandoned places Uh, Today, tourism to ghost towns is an enormous global industry, and it obscures how weird it is that we want to travel to places of decay and abandonment. Uh, This tourism is also sometimes uh, to places that are dangerous, uh, such as the still radioactive sites around Chernobyl, which are attracting tens of thousands of sightseers these days. So I want to kind of understand that impulse and introduce a sense of strangeness to all of it, you know, if I can. Um, And there are so many ghost towns that I'm going to have a hard time sort of picking which ones to focus on, but I'm uh, really looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a really fun and interesting project. And hopefully when it's done, uh, no pressure. <laughs> um, when it's a book, um, I can have you back and we can, we can talk about it because, um, I, I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, I think people would really enjoy listening to you talk about it as well. All right. I look um, forward to it. Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to thank, um, Espina for being on the show again. Um, I really appreciate it. I really like this book. Um, I really would encourage our listeners, um, to go get it, um, get a, Uh, ebook copy for right now, maybe, or order it from Amazon. Um, The title of the book is Hitler's Northern Utopia, Building the New Order in Occupied Norway. Um, I also want to thank everybody for listening today, and we will see you all next time.